So we had to take out these survivors that we had filmed. We only had done a couple at this point. And we took them around the world and we were having people actually ask them questions and talk to them. There was one instance, one day that I was there and a family came in, a little boy about, he must've been about 12, 13 years old. And there was a whole bunch of kids that were talking to Pincus at the time. And his mom came up to me and said, my son has another question for Pincus. That child looked at Pincus as his guide through what he was learning about was one of the most horrific moments in history. And he looked to Pincus as the person to go to. And the reason I knew that it was personal and that he had built this connection with this individual, he used his first name. He actually called him Pinkett. That was the moment that I said, okay, it really works. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go to that. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. You just heard from Heather Smith as she describes the moment where her exhibit built a bridge between past and present. In a heartbreaking instant, she realized that her invention, StoryFile, could really work. But what was StoryFile? Well, this company specializes in conversational video and preserving individual memories, posing fascinating hypotheticals for the future of education. Like, what if we could talk to a younger version of ourselves? What if high schoolers could talk face-to-face -face with a former president or revolutionary leader? This time travel might not be so far away due to Heather Smith's 2017 launch with the USC Shoah Foundation and Institute of Creative Technology. But Heather's journey wasn't always grounded in the past, before she built her family's jewelry store, making connections the old-fashioned way. I was wondering if you'd tell me a little bit about the family business. What are the earliest memories of going around that family business? I, my mom wouldn't let me on the sales floor, so it was a retail jewelry yeah. business. And she wouldn't let me on the sales floor until I was probably a certain height. <laughs> it had to be a certain, I think she said around 12, mm. 12 or 13. And so I would lurk in the background and be in the back stock and help people get things and hide underneath the counters <laughs> so the customers wouldn't see me. <laughs> I just, I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved watching my mom run it. I loved the sales. I loved the challenge and learning how to actually help someone find something that would make them feel good and feel great about themselves as well. I loved that my whole family was there. Because it was I your loved, grandfather yeah, that started it? Yeah. And my grandfather and I, during the Christmas season, I'll never forget, we used to have these, these competitions. So it was me, like the 13, 14, whatever year old against him being what at the time, I don't know, he was got to be 70, 75 ish. And he was a charmer. He could charm anyone into doing almost anything. It was amazing. Including but, buying the jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I was the young one that people were always just so impressed. Oh, yeah, I didn't want to disappoint the kid type of thing. So I played that card really well. But 
he just watching him and having those days where I beat him in sales were mm. incredible. It didn't happen very often. <laughs> but how do you go about fun. selling stuff? I have no idea how a jewelry store operates it's at just, all. What, no, can you no, like paint no. the it's scene? Selling anything. Mm. It doesn't matter what it is. You figure out what that person is actually asking you for. Is it that I want something that'll make me feel what? You have to figure that out. And then you have to find the right thing. Hopefully you have it. <laughs> but you have to find what will fulfill that need of theirs. Could you do you remember any specific examples of that? I know we're I know we're going way back. Oh my <laughs> goodness. I had one woman who came in and I think what was amazing to me is that it was empowering to her to be able to buy something for herself that was quite expensive on her own at this point in her life. And I thought that was amazing as a kid. And so it was you like know? you were trying to help, almost, her, help her feel find good. something yeah. that she really would treasure because she was buying it for herself. Not anybody else, not her parents giving her a gift, not a boyfriend. She wasn't inheriting anything. She was just buying something quite expensive because she wanted it and she loved it and she wanted to wear it every day and feel strong and powerful and confident in herself that she could do that. I feel like that's a life lesson that you learn pretty early or like a business lesson that you learn pretty early and mm -hmm. I don't like I, I think like the idea that anything that someone buys is because they want to feel a certain way is like a pretty I guess like maybe a, a advanced EQ for someone were there things that you realized you wanted to do outside of the jewelry store as well no my whole world was the jewelry store really yeah oh no I never envisioned my life being anything else than owning that store really yeah was it like not when I was a kid trained anyway. into you or it's like uh, your grandfather yeah. had this? Yeah. Then... Absolutely. Really? It was a shock to me when my mom's decided to sell it. My mom and dad decided to sell when it. When did they sell it? Oh, Old my gosh. I must have been 20-ish, 21, 20, okay. 18. I don't so know. Somewhere around there. You say you said your whole life centered around a jewelry store. So how did you think about like your studies and going towards like college age mm -hmm. when thinking about what you wanted to learn? I guess you were thinking you were going to bring that back to the jewelry store, but like, how are you thinking about your life trajectory pre pre sale? I didn't really think about college until late in high school because it didn't occur to me actually that I needed to go. Why? Because I was going to, Run the, the jewelry store. store. You can't. There was what were they going to teach me in books that I hadn't learned over the last ten years? Yeah. I did every single job in that business. So, without actually owning it, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I ended up going to college, and I ended up. I started out as an economic major, and then during the course of that, my mom and dad decided to sell the store. Do you remember so that conversation? They what? told me. Yeah, because that now, feels like fairly disruptive if you yeah. thought your whole life I'm going to yeah. own and run this family business mm -hmm. and then one day for it to just not 
be there. It like it's almost like now I have to reinvent a, another identity or oh no I did life path I did that was difficult yeah so that was can, can you tell me about like when you learned or like where were you what happened I remember actually what I do remember is going into the negotiation with them really? in order to sell so it. So they said, hey, we're going to sell and, it and you're going to... Yeah. And I negotiated wow. the terms, the payment. Who was it? It was, what? it was a massive diamond chain. And what they ultimately wanted, the, the, the value proposition for them was that my grandfather had actually gotten an extremely unusually long lease in the best malls in San Diego. So it wasn't necessarily that they were purchasing the business per se, but they were purchasing the lease. The, the asset that they had in that lease. Sure. Yeah. So what was it like to actually sell for you? It was heartbreaking. It was my whole identity. I couldn't believe that they were doing it because I was so close to my grandparents and I felt like this was their life's work and you're just selling it out of for what for the least, but i understood or... also the practicality of it because and they made a good argument in that business wasn't mom and pop so much anymore this was the early mid 80s and everything was going to larger chains so if we were to actually exist and continue, we would have had to have expanded. That would have taken a lot of capital to do. You either, and I think that my parents particularly, even my grandparents, they came from a, a time in which my, grand, my dad even lived through the depression. He was a young kid during that, so he remembers it. You didn't have debt. So for them to go and raise 20 million, 50 million, whatever they would have needed to make it a, a chain scenario or have even multiple, six, seven, whatever stores, they would have had to have this concept of debt, like the investors that I don't think it was, I think that was such a foreign thing to them. And they had already made enough. They had a very comfortable life. I wasn't old enough either to really take over yeah. and then grow it. Yeah. So it but you just, were almost there. So it feels, I was almost, it, I think it I feels was like about, you were about to like yeah. maybe start taking the reins and then it I just think I disappears. Was a, I was about seven years too young at the time. So, so how do you begin to form your identity all in over like again? this vacuum? Yeah, because yeah. it's like you said you had no idea of what it looked like to not run this jewelry yeah. store, at least in the, in, in your prediction of what your future would be. So what do you do instead? How do you like start to reform that identity? My other passion would have been interior design. However, <laughs> coming from a retail background, interior design is, if someone had given me carte blanche, that would have been great and I would have done an amazing job. They would have been very happy, but that's not gonna happen when you're starting out. And when you're starting out, you deal with people and it's most, 50% of it is being a marriage counselor. Mm -hmm. Knowing that, I think it's the third or fourth reason why most people get di divorced. Is the house? Is remodeling a house. 
two. That's crazy <laughs> so, to me. No, 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 it's not because you Why know is it, it so brings not? up it brings up all the other all the other triggers, right? It, money was the first reason for divorce. It brings up every trigger you could possibly imagine with money. I want to spend money on this. No, I want to spend money on this. No, this is too much. No, you're doing this, and no, we can't do this, and we can do this. It's a constant. And I'm I guess balancing this one, this person's priorities, wants, with the other person's views, priorities, priorities yeah. and I'm balancing this other individual's completely different tastes and lifestyle. And the thought of going into interior design just was, oh no, I can't do that. I had a crisis. All right, what else do I want to do? Hmm. And I kind of copped out. I took the easy way out. And uh, decided to just get married. Was that a conscious decision to like get married to not think about? I think it was actually. It was an option that I had that I took consciously. And I knew I would be taken care of. And I knew I didn't have to work if I didn't want to ever again. So I didn't have to think about my identity. Didn't have to think about doing anything except raising kids and running a household and life feel and for you running a family you're 22 yeah. right at this point mm-hmm. you basically got the whole world mm. in front of you yeah but i feel like maybe not as much today or at least like in cities or such but i think that you go back like to a couple of generations or even one generation and it like at least marriage for women seems seemed to be a little bit more confining Or would you say that's true? I think it's what you make out of it and what you want your life to be. If you want that sort of life and you're happy, you're complete, you're fulfilled, more power to you. Did you know you weren't going to be fulfilled in that way? No. When, so this is, or when did you start to realize that you're like, well, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Was it like creeping? Were there moments? like, And what are those moments? Because I think it's super interesting. You obviously have a strong sense of identity now visionary and all but i think before it was you were in this limbo and so i'm wondering like how you started to notice that you wanted to reclaim your identity i think that i've always first and foremost been a really curious person and so i think that people that are really curious are never fully satisfied like they're not the status quo is just not acceptable and i think that i did have really bad postpartum after i I gave birth to my first but it was worse after i gave birth to my second and i started going back to school all right what what could i do or contribute and i said i've always been a massive history buff so i said all right I'll go back and I'll teach history or social studies. So I went to school for that. And during that time, I think I realized that I really did love the learning, the engagement, the back and forth, the people and the conversations that you're able to have that you don't have, even with friends and other friends with kids your conversations are completely different so i really did need that like the intellectual stimulation yeah Mm. and so went back to school 
funny enough, so I ended up actually majoring in history and focusing on modern Jewish history specifically. And that was probably also spawned as finding my identity and my religious identity. And it was fascinating to me. And then I t remember taking this one class on the Holocaust. And yeah, it, yeah. And, it and so many people died because of that one, a series of obviously political mistakes, but I just fell into doing these immersive environments with the exhibitions, partly because I was so good at interior design. I could envision the whole space and I really wanted people to feel as if they were really immersed in the story, like they were living it themselves through their surroundings, taste, smell, audio, like everything. You had to really be in that moment and feel what it was like. That was incredible to actually build for people. But along the way... What was the feeling that you wanted to, people to have? As if they were actually going through that. You could feel and you could viscerally know on a visceral level what that might have been like. Even if you could never understand completely. But just to bring you into that space where you were confined or you were you had to be quiet or you you were just in an environment that didn't have bathrooms even you didn't you couldn't brush your hair so many different things that working with the in this period of time with Holocaust survivors and trying to replicate what they went through physically. And then you go to the concentration camps and the work and the dirt and the living like that. And it's a powerful thing to try to bring a person to some level of understanding of what that might have actually felt like. You're not going to you're not going to do that completely. Obviously, that person's not necessarily hungry but doesn't even know what real hunger is. But yet you can feel the coldness. You can feel the alone space. So we built these traveling exhibitions. And Where would they go and who was seeing just them? Throughout the, mostly the educational system throughout Southern California. And they were super successful. And I just fell into it. And was, how did you fall into it? I was just asked to design them oh, and run okay. it. It's, this seems like a very, like the path between what you were doing with these exhibitions and what you're doing now. Mm -hmm. I feel like there, there's like we're, we're seeing the beginning of this path. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, like, what do you, do you remember any specific examples of people going through one of these exhibitions and feeling a certain way? Yeah. You, like, like, how did you know that what we, you were trying to do was actually received? People would come out shaken. People would come out actually visibly disturbed and pained. How, how did that make you feel to see someone affected in that way? That they understood that the hope was you would realize how awful this was and you wouldn't want to put anybody else through that. You wanted them to deeply be empathetic for what another human being went through. Why do you feel like it has like such an emotional connection for you? Like you're getting emotional just yeah. talking about like something that you created and I'm wondering like what is 
what, like what's the core of like where's the where is that coming from i think it's just the fact that i've seen so much and i've experienced these people's lives so many of them and they teach you so much about life it's an honor and the hope is that nobody has to go through that again people should just be nicer to other people <laughs> no and i like i can really see like why this means so much and like you have a connection with these people too and it's you're trying to share that but think about trying. it it's not just the holocaust survivors it's people in general like you and i are talking we're from a very similar world you may be i could probably be your mom <laughs> i want people to actually talk to people that live in russia live in mongolia live in 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 botswana live in china deep in china live in the south america get to know them get to know what makes them tick what their lives are like because you just you have so much to learn from people so much hmm. and i think like the more the more different that someone looks on, like the looks on the surface or mm. the different their experience is the more that you actually realize that there's like these same core human stories and characteristics that's that are same wherever you go and it, it actually makes you feel a lot closer just like humanity at large so it's pretty nice feeling there there's and there are people out there that have had to struggle to get to a certain place that we could never even imagine that struggle and going through it. So to just give somebody a tiny insight is a gift for that person. But you're born into a place. My mom always said, thank God I was born in the United States. You could have sure. been born anywhere, yeah. had any life experience. But when it comes down to it, you're right. You always just want the same thing at the end of the day. What do you think that thing is? Just to feel safe, feel loved, have enough to eat, have a roof right. over your head. So you were creating these different like Holocaust exhibitions. Yeah. And so can you lead me up to, I guess what, it was like 2009? Yeah, eight. Actually. Or 2008. So we were asked to present this one exhibit that we did was called Generations. And we were asked to talk about it at a Holocaust education conference in, at Yad Vashem in Israel and happened to catch the opening keynote. And there was a guy on, on the panel, the keynote, and he was the only one that made me cry when he spoke. It was so beautiful. I went up to say hi afterwards waiting in line for him in front of me is a holocaust survivor who wants to end up telling him his oh, life story so we end up catching each other's eye and that was it but i left i turned around and left and then a couple of days later he came into our session so i went up to him and i said what you said was really beautiful and i left didn't let him say it. <laughs> just like hey this is beautiful <laughs> no gotta go and then 
there was a reason. He, so the exhibition was actually themed after the theme that they had chosen for a Holocaust Remembrance Day for the following year. And so he wanted to know all about the exhibit and how we did it and basically wanted to do it in England. So I started working with him on that and it just, the rest is history. Can, can we detail some of those histories? So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you started working oh, and then what happened? Anyway, <laughs> Mr. we <laughs> started that, that whole relationship and then he ended up getting hired by the USC Shoah Foundation by Steven Spielberg to run the Shoah Foundation. Can which you explain is, a little bit what that is? Yeah, it's after Schindler's List, Steven Spielberg decided to spend the proceeds from that movie and ended up, he wanted to tell every Holocaust survivor that wanted to tell their story, he wanted them to be able to tell it. So he ended up creating the world's largest audiovisual archive of any. Holocaust survivors? No, of any single subject. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, I think right now it's probably got over, it's got 55,000 Holocaust survivor testimonies and then another, I think, three or 4,000 testimonies from other genocides that have happened in the 20th century. So, Wow. Unfortunately. Stephen was brought in to run that institute once it went to, it had moved to USC and from Universal and moved to USC. It needed to be attached to an educational university. And then he was brought in to run that. So once he was brought in to run that, we were in closer geographic proximity to each other. And one day I just came to him and I said, look, I've been having these amazing conversations. I want to just sit at a kitchen table. I want to feel like I'm sitting at a kitchen table with a Holocaust survivor and just having a conversation. I wanted to feel as if they were sitting there with me and we were just having a conversation. And he had written his PhD, had been on the trajectory of testimony and memory. So he understood that having a conversation with somebody is very different and asking them questions is very different than going through a narrative of their life from beginning to end. And it's through those conversations that you learn what you really want to learn Right, because it, it, in, it, I think it's just all about the engagement, and it's right. all about you have agency, so you're more engaged, you're listening, you're paying attention, and you're asking what you want to know. Whereas I'm not having a director tell me what they want me to know. So we got it. He and he said, "All right, what would that look like?" And I said, "I don't know." And that started a two-year journey for me. To just see how to build it. it, Like, there's a lot of people out Mm. there that are like, I have this like cool idea. idea. I have a crazy like like like, people have these ideas, right? Mm -hmm. And then it just Mm. goes away and and is never thought of again. And so, how do you begin to turn this like random passing conversation Mm -hmm. into no? Like, I actually really want to create this, and this is important to create. What are the beginning steps of actually? committing to seeing this idea to the next phase and what is that next phase i think you tapped into it when you said it this is an idea that really needs to happen and you only do that through having conversations with other people Stephen and i had a lot of conversations about it first of all the most important thing is 
it was going to be millions and millions of dollars to do ultimately. Really, really difficult. You think it's difficult for to get money to fund a business? Try getting money to fund a nonprofit. It's so hard. So, you know, it, and this is one area that has institutions. It has established organizations already and they need money. So how did exist. you? But how did you know you needed money for this? Oh, because you can't build something like this from nothing. You need a team just to yeah. even do the interviews. I couldn't do it on a volunteer basis. So you needed professionals. You needed camera crews. You needed people. First of all, I had to find the technology, and I actually I had a few ideas, and it started with me learning a lot about how the Show Foundation does its own search for video. The things that you type in, the way you do it, that algorithm was actually built by Sam Gussman, who is the CTO of the Show Foundation. And he's also happens to be our co-founder at StoryFile. There was no ability to search video content prior to the Show Foundation. So if you were going to use this archive and it was going to live in the world and have a life and get seen by anyone used by anyone you had to be able to search it so they had to there was no way to search video prior to that in the early 90s so you have this idea and then you start doing research on the organization that you think that can help with this idea which is the show Foundation. Foundation. and now it's okay i have this even more tuned idea of how i can use the technology that exists within this organization how i can leverage this organization to create this initial idea. But then how well, I you... had a partner. Mm-hmm. So Stephen Smith was the executive director of the Show Foundation, and then Sam Gossman was the CTO. Okay. So, I mean, I had this idea. I went to them. I said, we have to figure out how to do it. They said, okay, go away and figure it out. So I came back to them with an institution that I found, which happened to be a USC institution. And they had all the pieces that I could envision if we just put them together, we may be able to do this. And then you go into the exploratory phase and you you say, okay, let's do a proof of concept. Is this really gonna work? Can we do this? Countless meetings, trying to raise money to do the proof of concept alone was kind of crazy. We had to raise on a complete concept, on a concept that we didn't know it would actually do what we wanted it to do. We didn't know It had never been done before, so we didn't know if it would actually build empathy in people, if they would actually relate to these individuals, if they would feel as if they've had a conversation with an actual survivor. We didn't know that at the time. So it was a big leap of faith for a lot of people to put money into, and thank God it worked. Yes, I want to talk (laughs) about actually how it worked. Like, What does it actually look like to build out the technology? How long does it take? What does it actually look like to implement the money, how to hire the right people, like all this kinds of stuff? Between the USC Institute for Creative Technologies and then between the Show Foundation team, first we thought, okay, we could use avatars hmm. of Holocaust survivors. They specialized in what they called virtual characters. So we could have built a very photo real Holocaust survivor. We couldn't do that. Because A, you wouldn't have any of the nonverbal communication. You wouldn't be able to look into someone's eyes and really trust that they were real. So therefore, what they were saying would always be suspect. And with a subject like the Holocaust, 
We don't so want much, it to be you suspect. You can't do that. So it was imperative that we use real people, which they had never done before. You when know, you it, say avatars, mm-hmm. like was this the same technology that was used in? So to in order to make a photo real image of a person talk and speak and look like a real person, mm-hmm. that's what they specialized in. That wouldn't have suited our purpose, our use case. So we needed that same lab though, where they did help with the capture because we wanted to use the way they capture for people in VR and to do the vir- the virtual characters, they had to be filmed a certain way. So what that allowed us to do was film these individuals, these people that way. So we needed the Institute for Creative Technologies lab, graphics lab to do the capture. Then we needed them to be able to help us think through if you're going to be answering questions and you want it to seem like a real conversation, so how do you go from that one question to the 474th question and not have it seem as if you're not there? Do you do a jump cut and make it severe and then just move on? We're still improving it and still doing a lot of work on that front. But the moment in between, like how do you build an algorithm that can transition a person from one pose one posture to the, the next, next to make it just seem like randomly mm. completely randomly it's one thing to do it in a movie because you know what's happening the storyline and it's permanent you have to like interpolate this between is, these yeah two this frames. is totally yeah. random so that was another challenge that ict brought to the table is how do we figure that out so you see all these challenges and you're figuring out the technology when do you know that you actually have something that is working? So we had to take out these survivors that we had filmed. We only had done a couple at this point, and it was around 2014, 2015. And we took them around the world, and we were having people actually ask them questions and talk to them. Most of those environments were what we call docent-led. So you would ask the question, I would actually repeat the question into the microphone and ask the Holocaust survivor. At some point, we had to practice it just with people, like the public, just randomly coming up and asking a question. The U.S. Holocaust Museum was very generous and offered to let us test it out and set up an exhibit there for a few weeks to actually engage with their public which is a big risk on their part, I must say. It was great. But there was one instance, one day that I was there, and a family came in, a little boy about, he must have been about 12, 13 years old, with his parents. And they came in, and there was a whole bunch of kids that were talking to Pincus at the time. It was this Holocaust survivor's name was Pincus Gutter that, was, that we were showing. And he just observed. And I asked him if he wanted to ask Pincus a question. And he said, he just shook his head, actually didn't verbally say anything. And then I said, okay, if you ever do, I'm over here. They came back about a half an hour later. And the mother tapped me on the shoulder. She says, would you mind if my son asked a question? And I said, oh, no, certainly not. Go ahead. So he went right up to it didn't even ask us how it worked, asked the question, got his answer, happy he got his answer, and he walked away. Then they came back about an hour and a half later, 
And his mom came up to me and said, my son has another question for Pinkett. And I thought at that moment, that's it. That has to be it. It, that child looked at Pincus as his guide through what he was learning about was one of the most horrific moments in history. He was grappling with it. And he looked to Pincus as the person to go to, his person. And the reason I knew that it was personal and that he had built this connection with this individual he used his first name. He actually called him Pinkett. So you don't do that unless you feel a certain, that you know someone. And that was the moment that I said, okay, it really works. So how do you continue developing this? Like, where do you go from there? I had promised myself that I would finish this project. I would do the 12 survivors that we had originally intended to do, and I'd see it through. And then I knew that there were presidents. There were people that have changed our world. There were scientists that have made amazing discoveries. And yet there were also 8 billion people in the world who each have their own story and can make their own contribution to humanity. So I knew that we always wanted to do this with other people. The technology in order to do that, because we also knew that it needed to be automated if you were going to do this and make it ubiquitous. So you had to make a cheaper, faster version that people could just do with whatever device they had, however they needed to do it. And it had to be online. And it wasn't until around 2017 that we started to see the infrastructure for that actually happening. 4G, 5G coming out, the groundwork was laying for that. Speech recognition had gotten so much better. Upload, download speeds were finally in a zone where people would probably could put up with the patients or had patients to go through it. There were just so many factors that you had to wait for to be developed. Or you could raise $250 million <laughs> or a billion dollars and do it yourself. But we knew it was going to eventually happen. The trick was, all right, at what point do we start building it that it does have all the blocks that you can put together to build the structure? So we started in 2018. And this is story file. Yeah. And what was the mission that you had? To make conversational video ubiquitous. To allow for everyone and everything to tell its story. And to just be able to have, be discovered by people and have people be able to ask them questions and find out more information, what they wanted to know. We wanted, for example, if you were just diagnosed, like I was diagnosed in 2006 with multiple sclerosis. And one of the first things I wanted to know was, what's next? What am I going to go through? okay, you, what am I going to go through two days of Google and every single page of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of pages that came up? No, I just wanted to ask somebody. I wanted to talk to people who really had had it. I wanted to talk to them about what did you first think when you heard your diagnosis? Tell me about every day, like 
daily life after that? What did you do? How'd you cope? That's what I wanted to know. Yeah. You want to know how it feels. Yeah. I think like so much of this conversation, I mean, even from like your time in the jewelry store, it's like, how do you make people feel a certain way? And how does this feel yourself? It's like, I feel like you've been very in touch with that since like the beginning. So I guess there's a couple of things that I want want to ask about in terms of what Storyfile is up to today. Because you have what I imagine was like the upgraded original vision of Storyfile where it's like you you have this this like 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 perfect room where you have people come in, tell their stories, and then you're creating these videos to talk back. But you also mentioned wanting to democratize this in a little bit ways. So how have you been able to one upgrade the original vision to where it is today and also expand into a place where everyone can have their stories told that was years of iteration years of development developing a platform that people could use in order to create these story files for themselves in order to democratize it it had to be fast enough inexpensive enough and people had to use their own devices, whatever they had access to, in order to be able to create a story file. So that's what we concentrated on for the better part of three years, is building that platform. And now individuals can go through and they can, like you said, high school students can record any individual in their community that they want to and learn from, and they can capture their whole story. And then others, 50 years from now, will be able to have a conversation with that individual and learn from them, learn about their life and what they experienced. That was the goal. The goal was 50 years from now, and a kid sitting in a classroom somewhere in the world would be able to talk to pretty much any world leader and have a conversation with them if they wanted to, and learn from them what they wanted to learn at that time. I mean, wouldn't it be cool if you could talk or have a conversation right now with MLK? You have to capture these people, not necessarily when they've done something amazing, but even during and when they're doing something, or even if they haven't achieved it yet, It's an amazing experience and amazingly valuable to future generations to know and be able to talk to these people where they were at. Because you really don't know who's going to become like the next MLK, right? So you've got to take story files of a wide breadth of people and individuals and influencers and people that, that are moving and shaping the world we live in. And I hope that people do it with story file. I hope they use it. I don't know how people are going to use it, really, not yet, but I do hope that intent comes through and that goal is achieved, but I won't be alive to see it. Well, I think that's the beautiful thing about creating a new technology is you never know where people are going to take it and they'll probably take it in ways that you you couldn't have imagined. So kind of wrapping up, what do you think that does for creating this technology, these this um, these archives that you hope will be seen for generations to come. So what kind of world do you think that 
creates um, moving forward or what kind of world you hope that will create moving forward? When everybody leaves their story, the archive of humanity 50, 100, 200 years from now, we'll have a way to connect everyone to anyone and everyone can be part of the conversation from any period of time. It's completely, it's across time and space and it will connect everyone to their humanity and connect everyone to what should be really important, which is that human experience that we all want to learn from, that we all create our own identities from as we learn about these experiences that other people have had and that, that other people have gone through. That's what we all create our identities from, knowing those stories, knowing those people. So think about how much richer all of our lives will be when we understand other people and where they come from and understand their stories and get to know them. And that's what we want for the Archive of Humanity. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our Chief of Staff and Operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. With support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee Buchanan, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Mickey Mukawa, Sylvie Wang, and Eric Menna. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Lil, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.